The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I'm grateful to be with you all today. I think it's, uh, we're the, I realize we're the faithful few um, here during this busy season. <laughs> I was looking back at this past week and I'm just amazed at how much we can all cram in to a small amount of time. Uh, with Christmas, all the services we had early last week, and I was just thinking as we're coming in, I, I, I don't even, didn't even have like the ability to make New Year's plans this year. So maybe you guys have New Year's plans, maybe you better planners than me. Um, but New Year's is a time of, you know, where we remember things, right? You know, just like we have Christmas traditions, a lot of us sometimes have New Year's traditions. I don't make black-eyed peas. I don't know if anyone still does that. Um, but sometimes you stay up late, sometimes you, you get out with people, and you do things you wouldn't normally do. But there's also this other ritual that we do, where we, we look back at the year and we see, okay, what happened? Where did the year go? And how am I any different? How are any of these things that lead me and guide me in my life still true? And what is still challenging for me in this moment? The thing I want to ask us to consider this morning is something kind of hard, something I've been reflecting on my own life, and I would like to invite you to do that with me this morning. And the question is, what is it that makes you scared? What are you most scared of? This thing that lingers at the back of your chest is like almost like a constant hum in your life. We use so many words to describe this, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, worry, But what is that thing that is lingering inside your experience each and every day that is so hard to let go of? You know, the world is a dark place, and you don't really have to look too far, whether at any of the news we look up, you find story after story of pain, abuse, and injustice. And amidst of all this, there's this big question of what is right, what is true, And these are all things that are global, social, big picture things, right? But in the midst of all these things, there's you and there's me. There's the person next to you on both sides. And there's this personal fear underneath it all. One example of this for me um, is blindness. I've always been really scared about being blind. I don't know if you've thought about this before. It terrifies me. In high school... I had this experience where I had an allergic reaction to my, in my eyes. I was wearing contacts. I don't wear contacts anymore because of this experience. I had an allergic reaction to this contact solution. And I had corneal abrasions in both my eyes, and I was essentially blind for a night. Completely blind, and best yet, it was Halloween. So just imagine all the activity on the streets, and, and I was scared. I had to wake up every hour putting ointment on my eye just to kind of help soothe the pain and let it heal. It was a scary experience, and that thing is still with me. That fear is still with me, hiding underneath the surface. The scare, the scared, the fear, the worry, the anxiety. And they all emerge and pop up in different ways in my life for different things I'm scared of and different things you might be scared of. And they influence the way I respond to the people in front of me, to the situations in front of me. Earlier this fall, I started working as a chaplain at a hospital in town. 
And so I've learned several things along the way. The first thing is how they teach you how to be a chaplain, which is good. It's good teaching. <laughs> uh, and one of the second, I mean, there's many things, but one of the second things that's really stood out to me is this question of how do you care for someone who's scared? How do you care for someone who's scared? And there's a couple things that, you know, I talk about with the other chaplains. You know, if someone's scared, you want to offer them support. You want to comfort them. You want to show up for them. You want to encourage them. You want them to know that they're not alone in the midst of their experience and that everything they've experienced in the past can help them in the present. And Isaiah 43 this morning, where we're going to be spending the majority of our time, has a lot to say about this. The first two words of our passage this morning, if you would look at me, is but now, which is this big expression of everything that Isaiah has already said. And Isaiah is a really big book, but it's a striking transition for Isaiah from what he's been saying earlier in Isaiah to now in Isaiah 43. It's a transitional moment, and we're in a transitional moment. The old year is passing, old year is passing away, and the new year is coming. Jonathan preached from Isaiah last week, and he basically tried to distill a lot of Isaiah by these two main themes, these themes that keep bouncing back at each other, if you remember, judgment and hope, a verdict for sinfulness and a victory for grace. And Isaiah's prophetic witness through the entire book stretches through all these different experiences Israel has as a people from resisting God and rebelling, and then all of a sudden becoming exiles in all these different parts of the world by different rising empires in history. And one of the the parts of Isaiah that just kind of really resonates with me with this passage is Isaiah 5, and it's a song. It's a song about a vineyard. So I would like to read just part of that song with you in Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. A vineyard which is supposed to represent Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. This is God building this vineyard for the people of Israel. And then he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? It's the perfect setup. It's the perfect place to live, to find communion and rest with God. And then it turns. And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. This is the state Israel is at the time of Isaiah. And Isaiah is called, and his calling is it's not a very promising one. You can look in the next chapter. I'll kind of paraphrase it for us a little bit. But Isaiah is called, and this is exactly what he's told by God, that the people that he's being called to minister to, they will not hear and they will not understand. They might think they see, but they do not perceive. Their hearts are dull, their ears are heavy, and their eyes are blind. Only if they turn away from their sins can they find healing and redemption. It's hard for me to feel like Isaiah said, sign me up! That's where I want to go! And he was faithful to the Lord to do this work, but it doesn't sound good. And they've been taken away 
for all these different places of the world, so much pain, so much suffering, not where they thought they would end up being as the people of God. And then there's the turn that I'm talking about. The turn. It starts in Isaiah 40, and 43 is connected to that, where Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. The war is coming to an end, and they will be pardoned. This is God's message to the people of Israel. And then like that passage that was read towards the end of Isaiah 43, in verse 18, remember not the former things. Behold, I am doing a new thing. I certainly would like a new thing this year. But what is this new thing? And what does it matter for us today? You might be going into this new year thinking, this is not the way I thought it was going to start the year. I thought that 2018 was my year where everything was going to get put back together and perfect. Maybe you're not in the job you thought you'd be. Maybe family didn't look like the way it looked like for you. Maybe as the days and weeks go by, you find you have more time than you want and you don't know what to do with it. And there might still be that fear. Whatever that is for you, that's still lingering. Well, what I want to invite us to see is the words of comfort that's in Isaiah 43 here today for us. These words of comfort. Because Israel's redemption, what God does for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, is our redemption. And the same struggles that it has as a people are not that different from our own. So let's hear these words of comfort. I'm just going to go through the passage verse by verse and lift these up for us. Starting in verse 1, but now, the big but now that was explained, right? Thus says the Lord, he who created, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. The first thing here is that comforts by his, God comforts by his presence. God comforts by his presence, and his presence is there in every season, in every experience. And the first thing Isaiah focuses on is creation, the forming and creating of our world, of a people, of Jacob and Israel. And Isaiah uses Jacob and Israel interchangeably. If you, if you read the book of Isaiah, you'll see Jacob, Israel. And to actually use Jacob is a really personal name. It'd be like you speaking to me, Chris. You know, people who don't know me that well wouldn't necessarily call me by name. But Jacob, if you remember the Bible, stole his blessing from his brother, Esau. And he wrestled with God. And after he wrestled with God, God gave him a name, Israel. He called him a name, a personal name. He gave him a new name. Israel, which means fighter of God. One who has fought with God. And isn't that emblematic of just how the people of Israel related to God and how we do? Constantly fighting him, constantly resisting what is happening in the world. God points to his creation. And then the next part of verse 1, he says, and this will just be the refrain of this sermon and hopefully the word of comfort today, fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. These are these personal things that God is calling out to the people that feel completely rejected, that feel like they have been forgotten in a world that is not Jewish, that is not about Yahweh. Fear not. He has called them His. And then he goes through all these different experiences, that God is present in every experience 
Going into verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. This is every experience. And as I read these things, I can't help but think of Joshua leading the people into the promised land as they're moving to cross over the Jordan, that the, the raging waters suddenly go down small and allow the people to pass. Or this whole idea of fire that doesn't consume you. I think of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the three exiles in Babylon and Daniel, who are, go into the furnace faithfully and come out unscathed. These are some of these experiences, I think, that Isaiah is speaking to. In the next verse, we move from God's presence to God's protection, future and past. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. He's protecting them, and he's protecting them against all these different peoples that they know about. Now, as he's talking about it, God is saying that you are so much more valuable than all these different people. Yes, they might be bigger. Or you think of Egypt, one of the more established countries in the ancient world. Yes, they might have more wealth and riches and notoriety, but you are mine. You are precious to me. That's his next words, right? Verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Wherever and whoever, Israel is precious to God. He honors them and he loves them. I want that to be true for me. I want to be precious, loved, accepted, protected. It's easy, and I don't know what your experience is of church, but it's easy to take for granted the special relationship we have with God this special relationship we had as the people of God. Because in the church, you just, everything becomes assumed over time. All these different truths become assumed. And yet we have access to a God of infinite power, ability, and presence who relates to us on this personal level that we can step into it and pray, and he hears our prayers. And even before we pray, he knows our thoughts, minds, and feelings. I don't want us to lose track of that, to miss that. Because like Israel, God loves us as his own. The next thing I want us to look at is that we had God comforts by his presence, by his protection, future, past. And then God comforts by his promises. And what we see in the next few verses is that God's power, powerful over any other power in the world, that anyone who opposes him he has dominion and sovereignty over this. He reigns over the world. Verse 5, Fear not, I, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. What he's saying is that I have the ability, even though you are a dispersed, scattered nation, to bring you home. That this is a homecoming, that wherever you might find yourself, however grim it might be, I can bring you home. He gathers his people back to Israel, as we know in its history, 
And I also think he works in different countries around the world, gathering people that they might find communion and fellowship with one another. This verse 7 is kind of caps off this section in a really wonderful way, saying everyone, basically explaining who God is gathering. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And it's, it's the inversion of the first verse. That first verse, where instead this time it's the gift of a name for his call, created now for his glory, formed personally and intimately, like a potter working a piece of clay, putting pressure with his hands. And at this point, you know, in the text, in the sermon, I want to ask, so what? Like, what's the point? How does this touch down for me? And Isaiah Isaiah's answer to this isn't a, isn't a very grounded, practical one. He starts talking about this dramatic courtroom, seven, you know, 8 through 13. It's about a courtroom where God is proceeding in relationship with his people and before all the different nations of the world. But it's through what happens in this courtroom, I think we can see what it means. What's our response to God's comfort of his presence, protection, and promises? And the first thing, I want us to look at is in verse 8 where he says, Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. And this is the first time where I was talking about when Isaiah called, was called to a prophetic ministry, right? And he was told that the people he was going to serve were going to be blind so they wouldn't see him, and they were going to be deaf so they wouldn't hear him. But when you look at this verse, you realize that They're blind, but they have eyes, and and it seems like they work. And they're deaf, but they can kind of hear. And so what's really being communicated is that Israel has the ability to see, but chooses not to. They could hear, but don't. Like, they have this capacity to behold God for their experience in the moment. And they have just walked away from that path. And then that's the reality of Israel, just to kind of elaborate more. To get back to this courtroom idea, God calls the courtroom together in verse 8 and 9. All the nations gather together, the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? That's one of the verses later in the passage, the former things. In this situation, it's referring to the former things that these other nations have to offer Babylon, Assyria, Persia. What are the former things that you've predicted? The things that have come to pass? The things that you said would be? And really, God's banking them, putting them in the corner because they have not predicted what would happen for their own empires. Empires rise and fall. It, the issue is raised in verse 9, and God, to basically make his claim to make his defense, he calls the blind witnesses in verse 10. The people who are spiritually blind, blind, who don't see God. He says in verse 10, you are my witnesses to Israel, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Even though they're blind, they have experienced the Lord. And even though they've chosen not to see and hear all that they could have, God wants to use them, just like he wants to use me. 
just like he wants to use you. Blind witnesses. And the rest of this section is this powerful assertion, a court-adjourned moment. We're supposed to feel the gavel clanging, slamming against the wood that God says, there is no other judge in this world, only me. That I am the one who formed this people and all other peoples. No God has been formed before me and no God will be formed after me. And then he goes back and says, proclaiming that my witnesses will bear forth as the means for, why, for how the world will know who I am, that they will know of my glory. And in verse 13, he says, from here on out, from henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And the answer is no one. No one can undo the things that I am doing. So kind of to sum up where we are at this point, that God comforts through his presence, his protection, and his promises. But what we're learning in these verses is there's a point to it. The point that all this comfort is so that we, you and I, as children of God, as part of the family of God, can boldly trust him. We can boldly trust him when our circumstances would tell us not to. In addition to boldly trusting him, that we would bear witness to the world of who he is, his glorious grace, his wonderful mercy, his power over every situation, and his desire to show mercy. You and I would bear witness. It's where the courtroom touches down into the community. It's not just this big, grand, poetic thing that we find in Isaiah often. But it touches down to our ever different life. We just wrapped up this series about vocational faithfulness, basically lifting up all these different vocations that you and I have. And it doesn't just come down to what we do from nine to five, but it's about everything of who we are, our roles in our families and then this body, whether it's family, friends. And all these roles are the context from which, in which we bear witness, in which we show God's love, in which we say, yeah, God has been faithful to me. The former things that Israel has is being delivered from, from captivity in Egypt, from seeing God again and again showing up and doing miraculous things and reminding them of his presence. And so the new thing, remember we're talking about the new thing, is that, yeah, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back. But the greater new thing for them and for you and me is the promise of Christ. The coming of Christ that we might fully receive God's comfort. Like God at the very beginning says, fear not for I have redeemed you. There is this promise of redemption, but it comes through the sending of his son who perfectly reveals the loving and gracious character of God. That when we see Christ and we behold him in this season and every other season, we see the love of God. We receive the love of God. We do so as sons and daughters who are precious to God. And so instead of relating to them in distance, being off, withdrawn away from God, or in disobedience, pulling away from Him, doing whatever we can to not be close to God, we instead relate to Him in trust and communion. 
But how does this connect with any of us here in this room who don't feel the comfort? I've been talking about this great thing, which maybe you're on board with this. Wonderful. I know in my life there are a lot of seasons I don't feel God's comfort. I don't, I have a lot more to worry about. (laughs) Where did God's comfort go? It's when we read Scripture that we see patterns. Patterns in different seasons. Words of comfort for different times. And there's a pattern you see of renewal, of reflection, of remembrance. Israel does it, and we see the church in our history doing it. And it's normal, it's a normal thing to say, you know, I'm just not feeling that. I'm not feeling that. My life is overwhelming right now. It's too many things. But that is exactly why we need to keep going to Scripture. That is exactly why we need to keep reading and keep praying, leading into the moment, asking God, where are you? Seeking out God's presence, which is there. His protection and provision, which is for you, and his promises, which will never go away. That we seek those out when we read Scripture. And even as we struggle, we struggle for fuller joy. We struggle for a joy that no one can offer to us. You know, I grew up saying this over and over again to myself, uh, what Paul says to the church in Philippians and Philippians 4, but do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I need to say that over and over again. I need that to be true for me. One, I need to remember to be thankful. But there is a great deal I do not understand about this world. And I do need God's comfort. I need to see him present. I need to see him acting. And that's the role of our church. It's not just an individual act. Most of the places where God speaks to Israel or to believers is not individually, But as a body, as a whole, as a community, he speaks to us. And one of the reasons he speaks to us is that we might comfort one another. A worshiping, praying church comforts one another. My grandfather was a bivocational Baptist pastor. And a couple years ago, I was asking him, what what were your favorite hymns? You know, you grew up singing these hymns. Like, I, I don't have this experience the way he grew up in church and And he told me that his favorite songs, these hymns, are these songs that focus on how the people in a community remind each other and tell each other the story of God. He said his favorite song was a song called, Tell Me an Old, Old Story. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story slowly that I might might take it in that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. That God uses us to comfort one another. A worshiping, praying community comforts one another. What holds us back? Vulnerability. How do we comfort one another if we don't know what's really going on with my... If I don't know what's going on with my sister, if I don't know what's going on with my brother... It takes vulnerability to go into that space. As I look back at my life, as much as I have sought after God's comfort, 
I haven't been willing to be vulnerable. And that holds back myself receiving comfort from God and from others. And it also is holding back others who are not sure if they want to share with me what's going on with them. Vulnerability. I mean, I look at my wife and I's life and I see what is next. I've done all this work of education. Now I'm a chaplain. We have an almost two-year-old. We're expecting another kid next year. We just moved. My family's moving all over the place. And I look at all these different things and say, God, I don't know if I can do this. Where are you in all of this? Where is your comfort? And it's in that experience of my everyday life of feeling like I don't know what to do and I feel completely isolated and separated from my body, my brothers and sisters. It's that experience that I need to be told, fear not. For God has redeemed me. He's called me by name. And I'm his. I will forever be his. And he will forever be mine. That I am precious in his eyes. The other thing that I would want to lift up is in 1 John 4. Where it says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. You can put anything you want there. Because it's a shared experience. Anxiety, worry. Perfect love casts out fear. If you know in that passage, our love is perfected by this experiencing this true, powerful love in Christ. That as we experience and receive His love, abiding in Him, we get it. There is this assurance there, that comfort in experiencing God, which is why we needed Christ to die on the cross for us. We needed Him to come to be born in a manger. But it's also so that we might trust Him. Trust them without fear of all the little details that are really beyond our control because they're in God's hands. And that we would actively seek to bear witness to what he's done for us because it is a message that deserves to be told because he's faithful to the end. I see this every day with my daughter because, you know, as my wife and I have learned how to be parents, she has this shared experience of us as those who give comfort. When she has a horrible night, she knows we'll be there for her. If she can't go to sleep, we'll rock her. When she's hungry, we'll feed her. When she's hurt herself, we'll kiss it and try to make it better. We'll do whatever we can. There is this relationship there of her knowing and trusting and realizing that we are safe people, that our home is a safe place. At some point, our ability to comfort is going to not work. There will be bigger things along the way that are beyond our control. And that's when we just need to realize that God is in the midst of it all. That God is the one that truly provides comfort, that sustains, protects, provides, is present. This, uh, there's a song we've been playing. We play all these different songs to worship and enjoy like just like mornings and she, our daughter Ruth she loves to dance and so if you've ever heard of Ellie Holcomb she's a singer songwriter artist and she came out with this album for kids called Sing Creation Songs and one of the songs is called Fear Not 
the chorus is taken right out of Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. So before we came this morning, we were dancing to that in our kitchen. (laughs) Dancing to that, singing. That song, the vineyard song I read at the beginning of the vineyard basically being destroyed by the elements. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have a new song. We have a new song that we can sing in the new year. And it's not like it's a new melody. It's not like it has new words necessarily. But it's new in the sense that I hope it's been refreshed for you this morning. That it's real. That it's felt. That it is something that is a part of you. Humming in your background. But now, fear not. Amen. Amen.